Let's turn now to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of God. Victor Frankl was uh, regarded by many as Europe's greatest psychiatrist, but from 1942 to 1945, he was imprisoned in Auschwitz and three other concentration camps. He saw there what made the difference between the living and the dead, the statistics and the survivors. And it wasn't a matter of physical health and strength. What made the difference between the living and the dead was hope, something to live for beyond the barbed wire, something to look forward to, something to go home to after the war. And he wrote about it in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. I remember this passage uh, years ago as a student. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. It began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed or wash or go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or do anything to help himself. He simply gave up, and there he remained, and nothing bothered him anymore. And neither will we survive without something to live for and look forward to beyond the barbed wire of this life. Without hope alive in our hearts, we just lie here and nothing bothers us anymore. It's a common condition. It's called despair. We look at on the shopping malls and the hamburger joints and the tollways of this world, and if that's all there is for us, if this is the stuff out of which we have to come up with some sort of existence, we will not make it. We will not go the distance. If the best we can expect is next summer's vacation in Paris, if you can afford it, or maybe just next week's outing at the lake, If our hope has been dumbed down 
to the level of a trouble-free, so-called successful existence until we die, well, without a transcendent hope lifting us, thrilling us, empowering us to live a higher life, then we inevitably fall back into the lifestyle that Malcolm Muggeridge used to call licking the earth. A matter of ego, carnality, materialism. That's what we're reduced to. Unless we have something to look forward to, a kind of north star to guide us that's out beyond the barbed wire of this world. Something that's ours, something beautiful, that's really ours and this world can never take away. We live our lives right now out of a vital connection with the future. That's why hope makes all the difference in our survivability. In Isaiah 40, 27 through 31, God is saying to us, I can lift you and renew you and energize you so that you rise up with undying resilience. Reach out for my strength. I want to show you how. In this passage, he shows us how. Now, you'll remember that here in Isaiah 40, and beginning in these chapters, Isaiah is being enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak to the Jews exiled in Babylon about 150 years after his own time. And when he addresses them, by now, at this point in their saga, they've been there for several decades. They're probably in the second generation there in this sort of massive house arrest. And they're starting to give up. They're in danger of quitting. They're teetering on the edge of despair. There's a great line in Jackson Brown's song, The Pretender. He speaks of watching the ships bearing his dreams sail out of sight. I think we understand that. There goes my life. There goes everything I've been hoping for. There goes everything I want, goodbye, and now my existence is one long death sentence. When we are cornered by those thoughts, what does God do? He comes to us. He comes with a massive infusion of fresh hope. He has not abandoned us. Far from it, the future holds for us and for the whole world a display of the glory of the Lord. The whole of reality is not here in this prison camp. There is something for us beyond the barbed wire, and that something is God himself. And he is our hope. Now, you see the structure of the passage. It's very simple. In three brief movements, Isaiah guides us from our despair through God's greatness into our renewal. The prophet's certainty is God himself, the centerpiece of the passage, He has, by now, in this chapter, Isaiah has unveiled before, he's shown us this promise, God's comforting promise of his coming glory, verses 1 through 11. He's shown us the power of God to keep that promise, verses 12 through 26. God is not too great to care for us. God is too great to overlook us. And now Isaiah brings that home to our hearts with strong pastoral care. So first of all, our despair, verse 27. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So Isaiah is reading our minds. What does he see there? The direction, here's what we're thinking. The direction, my way is hidden from the Lord. What does that mean? The direction my life is taken, the justice due to me, I might as, I might as well have fallen over the edge of the earth as far as God is concerned. And we all know what it's like to wonder, where is God now? I need him now. He demands so much from me, he doesn't lift a finger to help, and this happens time after time. <laughs> and what enters into our hearts is a quiet bitterness toward God, resentment, dark thoughts of God come into our minds. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, wrote this, By what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience of God, the Scripture doth witness, to wit, by pouring into their hearts that poison that God did not love them. And Isaiah articulates for us our own thoughts of God at moments like that, and he doesn't coddle us. He's Actually, he's not really a handholder. He challenges us. Why do you say this, O Jacob? Do you have the right to say that? Isaiah's tone reminds me of a letter I've read to you before. It's one of my favorite passages from Martin Luther. He, this is from a letter he wrote to Philip Melanchthon at a time when Melanchthon's faith was kind of shaky. Luther wrote, I pray for you very earnestly, and I am deeply pained that you keep sucking up cares like a leech and thus rendering my prayers vain. Christ knows whether it comes from stupidity or the Holy Spirit, but I, for my part, am not very much troubled about our cause. You know, they were fellow reformers. Indeed, I am more hopeful than I expected to be. God, who is able to raise the dead, is also able to uphold his cause when it is falling, or raise it up again when it has fallen, or move it forward when it is standing still. If we are not worthy instruments to accomplish his purpose, he'll find others. If we are not strengthened by his promises, where in all the world are the people to whom these promises apply? But more of this another time. After all, my writing this is like pouring water into the sea. Luther echoes Isaiah, but don't misunderstand his intention in this, you know, gently confrontational, why do you say this? You, you know the, um, the scene in Star Wars when Darth Vader breathes out a threat to one of his uh, hesitant underlings. It's something like this. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Remember that? <laughs> Isaiah is not like Darth Vader. He does confront the irrationality of our unbelief, but only to help us to get back on track. Isaiah understands that there are two kinds of doubt. One kind of doubt struggles to believe, struggles to believe in the face of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That kind of doubt is not a problem because it's willing to listen. It's reasonable. It's asking questions. It's open. The other kind of doubt 
resists belief. Even when good and sufficient reasons are offered, this kind of doubt folds its arms in defiance and says, nah, I still don't believe. You'll never make me go along with that. That kind of doubt isn't even able to hear what God has to say. And actually, the people Isaiah is addressing are floating somewhere between those two kinds of doubt. They're floating between a struggling faith and a cynical defiance. So what does God do? He helps them. He goes the second mile with them. He's already shown them his own incomparability in verses 12 through 26. We saw that last week. They already have good and sufficient reasons not to feel abandoned. Verse 26 said not even one star is missing. In other words, if even the faintest star is not missing from God's attentive care, we can be confident that God's eye is upon us too. But now, in verse 27, God reasons with them and with us in another way, a slightly different way. Now he reminds the exiles of something about themselves. They are Jacob Israel. However they may see themselves, God still sees them as under his covenant of grace. So he reminds them of their privileged place in the ways and in the purposes of God and invites them in that way to internalize again their sense of identity with God and to cherish all that that's worth. Now, what do these names, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? What do these names, Jacob and Israel, evoke? Long before, in the crisis of his life, the patriarch Jacob wrestled with God. Maybe you've read about that in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob was desperate for God's blessing, and God did bless him. God always blesses people who are desperate enough to wrestle with him. And as a token of this new beginning in Jacob's life, God changed his name. God gave him the name Israel. For it says, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, Isaiah is reminding this generation of Israel's descendants during the crisis of their lives that successful striving with God is their heritage. Their national forefather prevailed with God. And so can they. And so can we. With the finished work of Christ on the cross, guaranteeing even to our meager faith all the promises of God, he sees us not as victims, but as more than conquerors. How do we see ourselves? In 1988, I was going through a very dark time in my own life. I was doubting the love of God for me. Now, I know that sounds crazy. It was. But I had, I was destitute. I had no sense of the love of God in my being. And I needed help. So I began to correspond with Reverend William Still, a hero of mine, one of the patriarchs of the evangelicals in the Church of Scotland. And we interacted at length in a series of letters. And at one point, in his fatherly way, He wrote this, I do see that a great deal of this has to do with your own sense of worthlessness. But, dear brother, it is quite irrational. 
And I had to just throw my head back and laugh, uh, as Janie did as well. Part of the reason I lost contact with God's love was that my own sense of worth had been hollowed out for reasons I don't need to go into right now. I had lost a sense of who I was in Christ, which then darkened my view of Christ himself. You see, that's what happens. False condemnation, a sense of false condemnation, translates into self-rejection. If you see yourself as a piece of trash, the love of God will not dwell in your heart. So he comes to us, he understands that, he comes to us and he says, not only do I want you to know how great I am for you, I also want you to know how significant you are to me. You are not a piece of trash. Even with your imperfect faith, you have striven with me and have prevailed, and I will never back out on my promises to you. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. So God's answer to our despair is a refreshed sense of himself in his glory and of ourselves in Christ. See yourself not as you are in yourself. See yourself as you are in Christ. Accepted by God. Loved by God. Forever. Secondly, God's greatness, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Everything that matters in life hangs on who God is. Our survivability depends upon it. Our joy depends upon it. So, what does Isaiah say about God, who he is? Four things. First, God is eternal, the everlasting God. You and I are locked inside this little slot called right now. The present moment is all we experience, and it keeps fading away constantly. The present keeps becoming instantly, instantly becoming the past. And the urgency of whatever moment we find ourselves in can squeeze us with its pressures and so forth and make us, in our own sort of normal way, hysterical. We make foolish and costly decisions out of our own exaggerated sense of emergency. We always sin too soon. But God is not confined to time. In his majestic eternality, God is equally present to all points of time at once. He's always out ahead of us. So we should never panic if things don't unfold according to our expectations. God is working out his own purpose in his own way, in his own timing, by his own pace. And he does not need our nervous, hurried desperation. Do you know how to make God laugh? Give him a deadline. Secondly, God is the creator of everything to the very ends of the earth. There is not a single square inch of this earth unknown to God, lying beyond the range of his presence. 
Anywhere, therefore, that life may take us, whether Babylonian exile or a lonely hotel room or bed in the intensive care unit or an Iraqi battlefield, God will already be there for us and with us. We lie in his sovereign grace and power wherever life takes us. Thirdly, God is always at work, never tired. We tire daily. We need nourishment and rest every day. We spend, if you sleep, if you average eight hours of sleep, I suppose most of us don't. All right, let's suppose you average eight hours of sleep at night. You spend a third of your life asleep in bed, recouping your strength, and then you die. That's who we are. God does not need restoration. He's an eternally inexhaustible volcanic explosion of exuberance and joy. At any given moment in your life, in any particular event, he is accomplishing about 10,000 things you're not even aware of and you won't see until you get to heaven. He is forever fresh, always alert, always able. And fourthly, God is wise and his understanding is unsearchable. In other words, we can't figure God out. That's what the Bible is saying. We can't fathom the wisdom of his ways. We often look for a, a deepened insight into the meaning or purpose of, a, of an event in our lives. Sometimes we can even see it. It's thrilling when we can see the hand of God. And it, and it, it all makes sense why you missed that flight in Atlanta or whatever. But for every event that we can interpret, I don't know about you, but in my life there are about a dozen mysteries I can't explain. And that's what the Bible is affirming here. Life is often bewildering to us, but it is not bewildering to God. There are depths to His understanding we cannot access. And if our lives, therefore, are not exactly the way we would like them to be, we can be confident they are exactly what God wants them to be. He knows what he's doing. As believers, you see, we don't live by explanations. We live by promises. We don't figure God out by our brains. We submit to him by faith. So, God is always right now, always right here, always at work, and always wise. And that changes everything. But God is not only glorious in himself, he also shares his strength with us in our weakness. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Did you know that God wants to get involved in your subjectivity? Isn't that wonderful? How? His power is made perfect in your weakness. In fact, the word group, faint or be weary or grow weary, is the key to the passage occurring seven times. God is speaking here to weak, tired Discouraged believers. Look at this. Who are the faint? In verse 29, he gives power to the faint. Who are they in the coherence of the passage? Aren't they the complainers quoted in verse 27? Sure they are. So how are these people faint? How are they weary? They're weak in faith. 
Their fatigue is spiritual. They're weak in confidence, in, in will, in courage. They feel like quitting. And it's weaklings like them and like us who receive the power of God to live with our heads held high and joy in our hearts and with a lively confidence in a big God because we can see by faith in His promise a treasure, a future, a joy out there beyond the barbed wire and it's ours. People who find their reasons for living in God have an uncanny resilience about them. They live in ongoing renewal. How does God do this? How does it happen? That's the third part, our renewal, verses 30 and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, in verse 30, Isaiah's point is, 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 well, it's just blunt. He's saying that human strength at its best, human strength in its prime, will inevitably fail. We are no match for the demands of life. But we're not doomed to struggle on our own. We have more going for us than our own potential. There is a power beyond ourselves. And here the prophet shows us how to experience that sustaining power. Verse 29 declares that God gives power. Verse 31 explains how God gives power in ever fresh supply. Okay, but first, in verse 30, we admit our weakness, and that clears the way to take the next step. What then is Isaiah saying in verse 31? He is not merely saying God enables those who draw strength from his promise. He is saying that, but more. He's also saying God enables those who draw strength from his promise He enables them to do the impossible. The weak soar like eagles and run without tiring and walk without quitting. Their confidence in God will not let them lie down and die. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of expectancy. Now, obviously, the key word is wait. Those who wait for the Lord. What does the word wait mean? To wait for the Lord means to live in confident, eager suspense. To live with the tension of promises revealed but not yet fulfilled. Therefore, this waiting is not killing time. This waiting is not passive. It is waiting on tiptoe, waiting with eager longing. It is forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, and pressing on toward the goal. That's what it means to wait for the Lord. It is not erratic bursts of hyperactivity amid a general pattern of boredom. It is steady progress poured out into our personalities through the conviction that Jesus Christ is worth anything.
Your translation of the Bible may say that our part is to hope in the Lord, and that's not wrong. That's true. But the ESV is wise to use the word wait. It's, it's more precisely accurate, but also wiser, because waiting is an important part of our faith. God has built in waiting into the Christian experience. Waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. Stand back and look at the whole structure of the Christian life. What do you see? God gives us great and precious promises, and then He calls us to wait. To wait in faith, in hope. And Isaiah's point is, that that bright expectancy is the psychological leverage God uses to empower us. The how question is answered in the word wait. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to let God set the pace? Or are you such a controller you can't live on God's terms? Is the prospect of having the glory of the Lord as your eternal delight out beyond the barbed wire, is, is He enough for you? Does your heart prize Him as worth the wait? If so, you will be empowered. If not, you're on your own. Too often we look for an easy way out of our troubles. Some, you know, there's a, a sort of an escapist impulse in us all. We look for hope in all the wrong places. We look for the reasons to live, the reasons that we need here inside the perimeter of the barbed wire rather than out there in God's promised glory. But you and I do not need a quick fix. We tell ourselves that. It's a lie. You and I do not need a quick fix. What we need is a higher vision of the glory of the Lord and a burning passion to be a part of it. What we need is to find rest in His faithfulness and energy in His desirability. Christianity is not a way to cut a deal with God for an easier life now. Christianity is what empowers us to live for our real payoff out there. So how can we experience more of what Isaiah is talking about here? How can you and I enter into this more wonderfully? I think we have to ask ourselves two questions. One question is this. Do I believe that God can take a quitter like me and make him into a hero? Well... You and I might have to gulp before we answer that question, but I think most of us would probably admit that Almighty God in heaven can do even that. So let's move on to the second question. Have I deliberately shifted the affections of my heart from the rewards of this life to the glory of the Lord promised in the future? God has promised that Christ will consummate His kingdom with an overwhelming display of His glory. 
Everything we long for in our own deepest intentions is wrapped up in that promise. So where are our hearts? It will not do to put my faith in God while I keep my affections set on the rewards of this world. God will not underwrite my worldliness with His power. He never promised strength of eagles so that I could go on grunting in the sty of Babylon. Waiting for the Lord means not only that I trust Him to be true, but also that I long for Him as beautiful. Many Christians live defeated, mediocre lives because God allows them to. He will not support our carnality. But He will wonderfully empower the heart that says to Him, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. On Saturday morning, January 12, 1723, Jonathan Edwards wrote these words in his journal. I have been before God and have given myself all that I am and have to God so that I am not in any respect my own. I have this morning told him that I did take him for my whole portion and felicity, looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were. In other words, all I want out of life, what I will be very happy to settle for and walk away with, is God. And God alone and everything else He may give me, I will enjoy as from Him and for His sake, or else it has no moral legitimacy in my existence. It's an idol. God is my delight. And God alone. And I intend to live that way, He said. What statement is your life making? Paul wrote at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, we are weak, aren't we? But that's okay. We don't have to be supermen. God simply calls us to believe what we believe and set our hearts on things above. And if we will. You know, I suppose in one sense it's a very difficult thing to do for us all because we are just compulsively addicted to this world. And to let, emotional, let, our, let our emotional grip of that go and risk everything on God is a big step to take. But you know what? That step is called Christianity.
And if we'll take that step, then that vision of faith, that longing for God, will be the mechanism in our beings that God will use to pour out His sustaining power upon us. And we will go the distance with joy. What do you need to let go of this morning? And cling to God alone. Shall we pray? Set us free, we pray, that you might be our whole portion and felicity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.